right, welcome back, everyone. You are looking at live pictures there of Democrats on Capitol Hill taking a knee. Uh, we believe it's going to last for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Clown. Sublime Podcast. This is your host, Mr. Habadashi, aka Aeolus White, aka What's Good for the Goose is Good for the Gambit. Oh, Sheila. What? Oh, Sheila. Um, I don't know if y'all know that song, Ready for the World. Um, one, two, three. Uh, yo, they. I don't know how everybody wasn't pregnant during that time period. Let me just say that. I remember as a kid, there were those like CDs that would come on late at night, like those Quiet Storm CDs. They would try to get everybody to buy a few calls, a 1-800 number. And I remember seeing the little clip of a Ready for the World video, and I was like, I don't know. I should have known I was gay then, but... Um, when I heard this song, I was like, oh, this is my shit. Even though it's a song about a girl, it's just that the, the delivery is so gay. Like, I don't know. But apparently the girls were, you know, fiending over them back then. Um, so I opened the podcast with um, just some shit that I saw. I mean, the visual is more jarring than the audio. It's these fools, Nancy Pelosi and them. You know, kneeling with kente stoles, and it's funny because in it's a common tradition among Black graduates of all institutions, both like uh, HBCUs and PWIs, that you know the graduates will wear the the kente stoles or just you know a stole that you could decorate or what have you. So to see this in the sort of climate of graduation, to see all these white people with kente cloth um, stoles on kneeling, it just was so, um, it was so disgusting. Like, it was just clownery and foolery at its highest form. Like, I think watching white people scramble to look woke and scramble to look like they, you know, that they care and that they understand the project um, and that they care about black equality to end black suffering, promote black self-determination, economic justice and all of this. Like to see this like buffoonery um, play out is just really, I don't, quite understand what's happening like it's kind of it's a brand of fuckery that I um that's shocking to me and and I don't understand what black intern you know ordered the stoles or what the fuck happens but everybody they sh- they have to be stopped you know this carrying on has to be stopped So I'm recording during the daytime, so we're likely to hear a whole bunch of shit. The kids are outside running. (laughs) Um, 
So I don't know how quiet it's gonna be. There was also a protest like coming by my neighborhood. So who knows what was tea? They had a helicopter. You know, they're doing a lot for these protests in terms of like the police, as we know, the NYPD, these people are the most crooked. So I saw a, a police helicopter. I was like, okay, for a protest on, 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 uh, at Mega Everest, like, no, it's not that serious, but. Um, whatever. So I wanted to get into some shit today. <clears throat> Let me get some water. Um, get into some shit today that I feel is crucial to the project. Um, I don't know what order I'm going to go in. I'm, as y'all know, I'm just talking my shit, so I don't really know. But... I have a couple of conflicting things that I want to get through, and I'm hoping that the, the, my private goal and my personal goal from this episode is really to build on the momentum of last episode. On the 48th episode, I you know, just was kind of talking about my experience, talking about fortifying community, talking about you know, the benefits of having worked on yourself and you know, some tenets of allyship. Um, and I was just rapping, and I kind of want to keep on that because I feel that it's important for us in the work of building community to uh, promote each other's healing, but also to let the allies know or whatever. I still am not convinced, but let there's let's we'll get into that in a minute. Um, the allies are the folks that are supporters, <clears throat> really the our supporters, the folks that have been have volunteered and have been of service to the movement. Um, you know, also get them together and have it be like, you know, form an actual community. There's something that has been happening specifically related to the conversation of policing, criminal justice, the prison industrial complex, a debate between reforming and, ab and abolishing, the reformist versus abolitionist dichotomy. And what I mean by that is folks that want to make it better versus folks that want to get rid of the whole shit and build something in its place. Uh, a, a cycle of destruction and creation that happens, you know, that should in theory not quite be a cycle, but it ha could happen in parallel, it could happen sequentially, what have you. Um, and we saw, you know, Coonery from DeRay backing the whole reformist movement. And I, one of people in my community have been very articulate about this. Um, and I can actually, I have to talk to them and see if they want me to add links to their, their work. But um, I can plug them at the end of the podcast. I'll plug them in the show notes. But they've been uh, very articulate about why reformist uh, ideology are reformist ideas about the police that don't make any sense, right? And there's tons of math about that, like research and what have you that I won't summarize, but it's out there. But when you have this conversation of what to do with the police, do we reform it or do we get rid of it? Um, this dichotomy, this sort of debate is going to exist at large with every single part of our institution. 
And I, I think that as black people, we might be, you know, we might be not understanding the scope or underestimating the scope of the problem. And I don't think that's true. I think emotionally we understand the scope. But I think in terms of agenda formation and points, we, you know, are maybe are, might not be preparing ourselves for the full task. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, the folks that, um, you know, project manager folks know about scope creep. I'm not saying that an agenda today needs to t- attack everything. I'm saying that we need to prepare our spirits, prepare our minds, engage in therapeutic uh, practices, spiritual practices, community-based healing to prepare for the larger work, the actual project. And the truth be told, and you know, truth be told, the black politics. What it means to be a political agent as a black person will require us to bump up against this topic. Do we reform the system or do we get rid of the whole shit? A lot of times, you know, and what I see and what I see happening, what I see, what I predict, you know, see in both ways and mystical and or not, I see people defaulting to reform because to abolish from an abolitionist perspective requires you to give up privilege that is your own. You know, to give up elitism, to give up misogyny, to give up homophobia, to really think through, to give up all illusions of superiority and entitlement, um, particularly around one specific resource, and that's the freedom to determine yourself, that self-determination, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. But it requires everybody to be like, no, I don't deserve a heightened ability to determine my life because I've gone to school or because I've, you know, made a certain amount of money because I'm a cisgendered man because, you know, what have you. And the truth is that people, that privilege is addictive, that privilege is a blind spot, and that people are not going to want to give that up. There's a contingent of folks that do not want to give that shit up. And this is also the case for whites, but we're, we're talking about us right now. There's a, there's, there is a... And I, and I want to, you know, not quite shoot bail, but I want to give the narrative, do the narrative justice and say, hey, this is not criticism. A lot of folks... And when y'all hear me talk, particularly about our own, unless... I say I'm going in, I'm about to cut ass. Like, know that this is not criticism. Know that this is a description of what I understand to be the truth, and it's coming from a place of love, you know? But for us, there are black immigrants, particularly those from far away, so not Caribbean, but Africa, but, and the Caribbean as well, where you, or even South America, I mean, South America is farther than we think often, that we imagine, but... What it means to come to this country as a black immigrant, it means to stand, to, to you know, come face to face with black, anti-black racism, comes face, come face to face with the sort of bullshit ass nationalism or that where, you know, this fake patriotism bullshit, this anti-immigrant um, 
mentality. It means to travel far, save your resources, leave your family behind, potentially never see some of these people again or see them once every two years, three years, four years, assuming that you can leave the country. It really means like people are saving up for years because the flight is expensive. And it's like, when they come to this country, they sacrifice so much for their kids to achieve this American dream, for their kids to become, to enter the professional class, the storied, respected, honored professional class that is doctors, lawyers, etc. And to get the privileges that are associated with those positions as defined by American culture. And this is what people have given up just from the immigrant perspective, but there's also the black migrant. You know, there are people, I have friends that have come from the most rural places that you can think of to big cities to go to school or to chase their dreams. And because of this migration, and this is something that I think all of us can, you know, race regardless, it's really a class issue. Once you migrate far from your family, your family doesn't have money to help you if they're poor. You left the house, you left your hometown, it's a wrap. You better, you better figure that shit out because your family don't have it, you know? But obviously, due to the socioeconomic conditions of this country, black people have this experience more. And it's like, all of these real sacrifices, not to mention the traumas of being the only black student or being black in this world and trying to be upwardly mobile. The sacrifice is real, you know, the, the sort of invasion of your body, people making you feel like you're not attractive or that you are, um, your value is tied to your instrumentality, your value is tied to your use. You know, all of the people that use education to get ahead or even entertainment to get ahead, so that would include sports, music, etc., or theater, and their bodies are, you know, they're, they're using, they're allowing the capitalist system to exploit their physical form so that they can provide for their families and provide for their, you know, their parents, you know? So these sacrifices are real sacrifices and I don't want to be flippant about it. However, convincing these same people that in order for us to really get to a place where everybody has the freedom and right to self-determine, to be self-actualized, and I'm going to give like a a proxy definition of self-determination because it's a term that's usually used for like nation states but I feel like it's pretty good for person for people um as well and it also reminded me of like Kwanzaa I don't know but anyway um you know in order for everybody to have equal access to this you're gonna have to give some of this shit up and speaking about what I was talking about, you know, about the quality of your work, the Bible, that Bible verse that I fucking love, you know, people that have been gradually, you know, getting rid of some of these elitist tropes, these sexist tropes, these racist tropes oh, for a long period of time, now can stare the monster in the face and say, I'm good, I'm ready to renounce what privilege as a concept. Or they're more ready, because I think, I think it's difficult for anybody to, but they're more ready to renounce privilege as a, as, a, as a concept in the face of this mission. But the people that haven't been doing this work, 
that have to heal from the trauma of the interaction that don't have a self-esteem if it's not propped up on feeling superior. And this is some this is this is a white condition, by the way. So, you know, this is the history of, you know, whiteness in this country is that it, it you know, particularly for poor whites, the the game was to sell superiority as a drug and allow that superiority to take root and be the foundation of people's self-esteem, of white people's self-esteem. And this has happened in some ways through the promise of the American dream, through the promise of you know upward mobility to black people as well. So when we, now that we're trying to organize and get our shit together, step our dicks up for this cause, it's like, well, but you still want to, you still aren't ready to lift up the trans girl. You're still ready to beat them up, to beat the trans woman up. You're not really here for, for you know, black women, rep- black female representation. You're not really here for the nuanced conversation about, you know, colorism and its legacy and, and white supremacy. You're not really here for what it means to be, you know, black and be, you know, be a black disabled, or I hate to say disabled, but differently abled man. Who, when you're a black differently abled, differently abled man, I think you know a lot of black men's value has come from our instrumentality. You know, a lot of our masculinity comes from our presentation. What happens when your body doesn't do the same things as other people's? What happens when your bodies don't present in the same way? Would how do we actively uplift them? You know, and it's just like, I don't, these conversations need to happen at the same time. And not to say that I wanted to be like this really disorganized shouting match. But when we approach equality, let's just say equality loosely just determined, and we approach it as a, as a goal, it's like we can't just... You know, pick and choose. That's not how this is going to work. And, you know, philosophically, sort of bringing this back to police brutality, philosophically, I have a lot of problems with the reformist agenda. And I think for me, y'all heard me talk for almost a year now. This is episode 49 of the Black Sublime podcast. You know, holla at your boy. Um, you know... I can approach things with many different, you know, many different methods. Like there's the philosophical kind of on principle method. Like on principle, police are trash. So I don't really want to hear no shit about, no shit about, you know, cops potentially being reformed. They're being good cops. I don't want to hear it. You know, it comes from slavery. It comes from an over from overseeing. It comes from the concept of criminality. Comes from this. The Thirteenth Amendment loophole comes to, like was you know written such that they can continue to exploit and arrest and you know continue slavery through this form. Like that was people have been talking about slavery by another name for years. You know, and I think. So on that alone, having having a rotten root, having a rotten beginning, you know, just spoils it for me. You know, it was dying. It was moribund from the start. 
And we just sought to build life on top of it. And then we're confused why so many bodies are falling, why, why you know, funeral pyres are, are rich with black flesh. But we started this whole project on the bodies of, on dying, rotting black bodies, on institutions and methodologies and philosophies and religions and faith practices, all of that, which is okay, at, you know, okay with using our bodies as casualties. So for me, just philosophically or on principle, there's no reason to keep these niggas here, period. You know, like no reason. But you think about, from a narrative perspective, those who know me personally, you know that I've been affected by, by the war on crime, the war on, you know, the, this over-policing of black people. You know, my biological father has been in jail for over 20 years. You know, and there were grave injustices about his own trial, things that were illegal that were done in the sentencing and stuff, and he still doesn't have his freedom. I don't need to read about this. I can look to my life. I have friends that have had very similar experience with their parents. So I don't, I am the research. My family, my father, my mother, we are the research. So I definitely don't have time for it, right? Like I'm super, in the context of that, I'm definitely not here for it. And I think that Narrowly discussing police brutality, it's as cut and dry. But then expanding it from police brutality to something like like capitalism, like what we have today as American modern capitalism, I think that there are conversations to be had. I personally don't really care. I mean, my mentality is very pragmatic. I think that I want to get whatever gets me to self determination for all, I will take communism, socialism, whatever. The truth is that all of these things, that if you don't handle the power, the dispersion of power, and the distribution of power well, each of these economic systems will be corrupted. So the, po- the political is what needs to be really refined. But, you know, it's true that what we have today economically is nothing like what Adam Smith thought of back in the, in the, 18, the 1700s. You know, we, they, as they got rid of uh, mercantilism, or I used to say mercantilism, but whatever, uh, mercantilism, and before that, feudalism. You know, this, what we have today, is nothing like what he, what he thought. But even the, when you look at what he thought, it was corrupt from the start. This idea of the invisible hand and people's enlightened self-interest and it being right for everybody, that, that was clearly bullshit, clearly biased, because he was talking about the self-interest of white men, right? Um... But regardless, the conversations about giving up the idea of being wealthy, right? 
of saying that in order to correct, in order to be able to stand on your stand, you know, ten toes down with the cause to be able to stand with pride about your wealth. Because let's say we leave wealth as a concept, leave your sort of idea you can become crazy wealthy as a concept. Is there a world where you can where you can become crazy wealthy while not limiting others' abilities to self-determine? Is there a world where even if you can limit, even if you can do it without limiting, you know, others' abilities to self-determine, where you are not building on a legacy of privilege and anti-black racism and misogyny and blah blah blah? No, any wealth you amass now was on the backs of black people. On the backs, I mean, and obviously as a black person, I'm talking about black shit. But to be honest, I, when I sit and meditate, because I have a practice where that I, tr- I try to heighten my empathy. Because I'm naturally empathetic, but I, try to, I have a couple of exercises that I do to heighten it. And when I do that, when I meditate on the Native experience, it is... It, it offends my form, my body. You know, what was done and what is continue, what's still done to natives in this country, on this land. So no wealth, not even my own wealth, is acquired without the screaming and yelling of native ghosts, you know what I mean, wanting their land back. And then we had the nerve to name our estates after like native with native tongues. It's just like I can't like you know. I just like when I get too thought caught up in it, I'm just like this whole shit is crazy. It all just has to go. So on self determination. Well, let me finish this idea. Do whatever you need to do to get ready for this pruning. That is sure to come. To get ready for this fight for black, you know, for black people for equality that is sure to come. You're gonna have to give up privilege. You're gonna have to focus on creating things, producing things, in order to have value or, you know. Earn a way of a way of living. And I'm not, you know, and I don't want to say something less like, oh, you know, if you don't make anything, you don't have value. But I think a lot of the capitalist structures that we have today are built on the idea of subtract or extracting from the community, like landlords, you know, like anything where the, the idea is that you don't have to do shit, but you get money. That, that concept, capital, which is, this is what capital, you know, whatever, but the idea of like a sort of passive income cap, like that kind of use of capital is not, you're, you're not adding value to the system. You're taking and you're removing it. You know, there, there, there are ideas that I've been playing with. One of my friends, you talk about this a lot, about how to be a landlord that's not extractive. And we've been playing with the idea of maybe making landlords social workers as well, where if you have a tenant, you are responsible for their, 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 the fullness of their social um, 
the thing that they need socially are their social, what's the word I'm looking for? Like social security that helps to help them be productive so that it's not an extractive thing. But it's like, we're going to have to think about all of this in a different way. You know, like in order to really give everybody a chance at economic justice. So I wanted to talk about self-determination very, very quickly. The way that I'm using it in this conversation is really, you know, the ability to determine, or maybe I shouldn't define it that way because you know how they, in school, it's like you can't use the same word. Um, But essentially, I think you should have the freedom to co-author, co-create your life with whatever your God is, barring the earth, and your community. That's it. You, your God, your community, and what the earth has lent you. And you're supposed to use this such that, in my view, the love that's abundant, our abundant ability to love, is manifest in the abundance of things. Of resources. And what I mean by that is in the same way that I love my family and my friends infinitely, I should not be loving them infinitely, but then consuming their shit such that they can't survive. I can't do both. And that's how I'm seeing this, this, like this project. This project to give everybody that right is one that's going to require a a really huge and stark upheaval of the current system because that's not how the current system is built. That current system is built such that, you know, niggas with money can do that. If you have money, you can do that. (laughs) If you white, you can do that. If you straight, you can do that. If you're a man, you could do that. Or a cis man, you can do that. And it's like, this is not, this is not, this doesn't work. I want to shift the conversation to the project at large. And this, this is where I think it's important to bring some ally conversation in there. You cannot be an ally unless the, unless the community gives you that title. I see a lot of people self-identifying as allies. Knock that shit off. Cut it out. You know, it's not, you are not an ally because you like black people. In the same way, I am not an ally of the trans community just because I like, you know, I like trans people. <laughs> Liking trans people, liking, you know, black people isn't enough to make you an ally. Protesting isn't enough to, to make you an ally. And I'm not trying to be an asshole. What I'm trying to say is I appreciate the donations and I appreciate the support. I, the service that you're volunteering for, the, the, making yourself of, of service to the cause is something that I think the community is genuinely grateful for. But an ally, an ally 
is someone that I personally trust to advocate on my behalf. That understands the issues well enough to advance the agenda in the absence of a black person. You know, someone who um, I'm sure we have the same goal. And I'm not convinced that everybody protesting, we all have the same goal. And again, this is not criticism, but this is a description. I see a lot of people who's, who are gentrifiers protesting. So you've contributed to the economic, you know, the removal of black and brown people from the communities, the devaluing of black assets. You know, it's the case, you know, a lot of people feel like gentrification is like this magical thing. It's like where, you know, people just decided to care about these communities because of, you know, whatever. And now the property value has magically gone up. No, like black assets, black communities, because they were black and only because they were black were they devalued. You know, Fort Greene did not get closer to Manhattan. Wall Street has been Wall Street for a long time. It was because it was black, there was a lack of investment. Okay? Because Flatbush was black, because Bushwick was Latino before, but black, you know. These communities were divested from, ignored. And people suffered and and made a life and built culture and built community despite that. And you come here, a lot of people that gentrify are gentrifying with their daddy's dollars. You come here with your parents' dollars to aid the gentrification. And now you're protesting the NYPD, but you've brought new capital. You brought new financial resources into the system to fund them. So what are you going to do about that? And what am I going to do about that? Because it's the case, well, well I, you know, it's tricky for me because I don't have, no, don't have no coins now. But when I moved back to this neighborhood, I had money. Granted, I didn't drive the price up, though. I got, <laughs> I moved into some real hood-ass apartment. At a real, real low rate, and I kept that shit real low, and I still fight. I fight to have to have my rent lowered. And it's funny because I'll talk to people that will be like, your rent is already low, so why do you fight to have it lowered? And it's like, I fight to have it lowered because that's how we get equality for everybody in the community. If I allow them to bullshit and, and you know, and lie and do their fuck shit to raise my my rent, then that raises the whole the average rent of the building. You know, it allows them to, to charge more for everybody. So yes, I want my rent history for the past 15 years, okay? <laughs> but that was a sorry, that was a just a whole real estate like tangent thing. Um but if we don't have the same agenda, the same point the same purpose and are willing to sacrifice to say, you know, then it cannot be said that you're an ally. 
It can just be said that you're a support and that you've allowed yourself to be of service. And that's okay, too. But I think it's important for everybody to be clear. You know, I think there is value and there's power and there's, you know, there's the amplification of resource when everybody is clear on what they're doing, when they're deliberate about what they're doing, when I can recognize somebody in service, somebody in support, and somebody who's an ally, somebody that I know that if I, you know, that obviously black people should be present advocating for ourselves. But when we can't be present, when we're not present because we are tired, because we are, we've been assaulted, we've been attacked, and we've been killed, like all these spaces, when we've been excluded from the room, that there is somebody who can speak to it, who will speak to it, and who can speak to it, and is not going to, with, with his right hand, you know, give me shit, and with his left hand, take it away. So I want to frame the project so that people can opt in, opt in or opt out of certain elements of the project. What it means to win this fight or to be engaged in this fight, it means that you're willing to, re, you're trying to reimagine a life without a society without anti-black racism. Let's just say that. But obviously, we're not forgetting our native people. We're not forgetting basically anyone that's ever been a colony. This anti black imperialist racism, colonial, you know, racism. We are trying to imagine a world without it. We're trying to imagine and build a world without this. That means we are trying to undo 400 years, 401, I guess, because when was that, 16, 19, some shit? Like 401 years of anti-black racism on this land. If we're talking about then including gender, the enti- almost the entire history of Western civilization have women been mistreated and has misogyny been rampant and, syn- and synonymous with you know what it means to be a man. A lot of you know African like scholars of African history attribute misogyny in Africa to colonialism. That the pre-colonial era, women were allowed to amass fortune, power, influence to the same degree, just using different channels as men. I'm not a scholar in that world, so I don't know, but I believe it. The, the white, the history of white people, and this is something that white people have to contend with. A lot of these issues, the complexity and the sort of incestuous nature of all these styles of oppression was nurtured by whiteness. 
And by white people, even before the concept of whiteness, let's think even before the concept of whiteness, which, you know, I don't know how old whiteness is. I would imagine it's related to when the, when the Brits, for, or not the Brits, but when white Europeans first encountered like Indians, like East Indians, I would imagine. And I think that was like in the 16th century, I want to say. Um, even before whiteness with a capital W, even though I never capitalized white, um, feudalism was nasty. <laughs> like the feudal economy is a nasty economy. It is being a landlord. It's, it's, it's the foundation of the concept before mercantilism, like I was saying, of the landlord concept of, you know, paying shit and taking shit and people like that feudal feudalism was nasty and sexist. So it's like we are trying to do on the woman front, like the feminist front. Thousands of years of undo, thousands of years of white history. From the racism front, anti blackness, 400 years of it. I mean, I'm not, this is Pride Month, so let's just throw queerness in there. I mean, when was it? There was like the Anti Buggery Act or whatever they called that shit in 1533? 15 for some shit? 500 years of that. It's just like to imagine this world is going to take real creativity. It's going to take boldness. It's going to take courage. It's not going to be pithy. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take, we, we have to become artists. We have to become the geniuses that we didn't think we were in order to get this done. I wanted to talk about a couple of things, but I might leave it for next week. Um, let's see how quickly I can get through it. Uh, on the idea of us being artists, I wanted to just encourage us to see ourselves as this. You know, I think as an artist, sometimes I like to keep that art, like that artist creativity to myself. Like not keep it to myself, but just make it seem like if you're an artist, like you're an artist, like fuck these niggas are not artists. They can never be artists. Like, no, you know? And like, the truth is we are going to have to move with that creative artistic spirit. We all are going to have to, you know, reduce our egos. We're going to have to be open in a radical way. We're going to have to work on building shared vision. You know, we're going to have to watch what we consume sense on, from a sensory basis, but also take our world and like really mine it for symbols and mine it for purpose and meditate and then weave it into, you know, recycle it. It's like a recycling of what we see and what we observe and mixing it with things from our own spiritual well, our own well of our own shit put some purpose in there and bring it back out into the world. And we're going to have to do that on our own. We're going to need that. And it's that serious. Like it is that thorough. And I wanted to talk about community, but I think I will um, do that 
next week. I want to say before I go that I have always, always encouraged community and wanted community. And I can't be any more serious than that. Like, I can't emphasize it anymore. I, you know, as a black queer person, teenager, when I was in school and I was, you know, dealing with being in an elitist, well, elitist white institution, although I had my friends and I have beautiful friends that I'm still friends with today, um, but the aloneness, the, the, the aloneness, the solitude was really thick and heavy. And even prior to that, like navigating family, navigating the neighborhood. And I was able to build community in some ways, but I realized once I graduated from college how crucial community was, not just to quell any feelings of like loneliness, but also to broaden your imagination, to energize you on a fight. You know, when you have no people, you have no community, all you do is what you can imagine from the corner of your little mind in the context of this little universe. And sometimes your mind just doesn't create, no matter how good you are, doesn't create enough to solve the world's problems, to solve your own. Problems grow, they mount, and they look like they are, you know, insufferable. And you could just never conquer them, unconquerable. And it's like, if there's anything that I want everyone to do, ally or not, whatever. Even though I'd prefer if you were ally because, you know, whatever. But <laughs> I want us to build community. I want us to build community on genuine emotion, on rich narrative. And what I mean by that is allowing everybody to tell their own story and and I'm and and honor of those stories, and I'm not just saying the oral telling of stories, but how story is in your body, how it's in your gesture, it's in your 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 gates, it's in you know and how and honor each one and not feel like that protective personality, that defensiveness that uh, that pushes us to be violent to snuff each other out. A willingness to be able to observe and carry the fullness of someone's vulnerability and love them. To establish core values. You know, like these to be seen and to see others. Like this is what we, this for black people, for the queer blacks, for everyone who wants to be an ally for everyone who wants their service to be transformative, this is the work that's psychological before, you know, and in doing this, and, I, and I'm 
communicating it like it's separate from the privilege conversation, but it's really not. Privilege also stops intimacy. If I if I leave, if I, it stops community. They are the same. It is it is the cycle that I was talking about of destroying and generating at the same time in parallel. You break down privilege, you break down defenses, and you build community in its place. And I'm struggling with that. You know, I have community, so shout out to the, the you know, y'all know who y'all are. But I still have farther to go. A lot farther to go. You know, insecurity is a privilege. It's a real it's a weird inversion of subversion of well, inversion of privilege. And right now, we don't have the privilege to be insecure. If we really about this action, we don't have the privilege. We don't have the time. So I'm pushing myself to build relationships and to conquer fears and stuff. And it's hard for me. Because like we talked about my anger, you know, we won't go into her today. But it's definitely something that I'm aware of. So I don't want to come across as like preachy. And even on the privilege conversation, aside from insecurity, like I have, I've had a lot of privilege. I've also had a lot of bad shit, but I've had a lot of privilege. I've had a lot of privilege. I've had a lot of pain. And even I'm a little nervous of letting some of this shit go. I mean, I live, you know, who knows what it's going to be? Who knows who what living will be like? What having your own space will be like? What that means? What the word own even means in the new world? What, pro- what does it mean to have property in the new world? Space. You know, these are questions that may be, who knows? But I'll leave y'all with that. Have a beautiful last week. Um, Keep the fight up. Lean on, you know, be loved. Love others. Recharge, re-energize. Stay safe.